Appreciate that. If you have a Bible, would you take it and open it to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, if you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have one on some sort of electronic device, um, would encourage you to take a pew Bible and open it to uh, page 985. That's where our text will be. And we'll have opportunity today especially to really work through uh, the passage. So you want to have the Bible open as we reference to it. Back in January, we began studying the book of Colossians, and we have systematically studied this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse, not only to understand what Paul wrote and why he wrote it to the church at Colossae almost 2,000 years ago, but also to think through it and think about how this text applies to our lives, to think how we can continue to walk in Christ in the same way that those who first read this letter did, how they first heard about Christ through the preaching of the gospel, how they responded to it in faith, how they lived out this life of Christ that they had received in the gospel. And so we also are following in their path, and we too want to live out what we have received when we first believed the gospel as it was shared to us by our mom or by our dad, by a pastor, by a friend, by someone at a university, wherever it is you heard about the Lord, someone shared with you and you responded in faith to that message. And the goal then in receiving that message is to keep walking in it. Christianity is not just something that you believe and hold and kind of hold on to like a possession and that's, that's it, that's the end of it. You just look at it from time to time and admire it. It is, it is a, a lifestyle. That's what the word walk means. It's the word that's very used prevalently here in the book of Colossians. A walk, a lifestyle, a pattern of life, a pattern of conduct. And so we've systematically moved through this book trying to mine out how it is that we also walk in Christ. And now today we come to the end of the letter. As we mentioned in the very first sermon on this back in January, letter writing in ancient Rome was a very common medium for communication. And it followed a very typical pattern, a very specific pattern. And Paul is adapting that pattern, what would have been very common in the culture. Just as maybe I would write you a letter to encourage you and strengthen you, I might use those patterns that we learned back in third or fourth grade English. When I don't know if they still teach it or not, but when I went to school, we learned how to write a letter, right? There were certain things, certain formats you had to use, and you can communicate in the midst of that, that medium, that, that genre of letter writing. Well, Paul is simply adapting what is common in the culture as he's writing this letter to the Colossians. We see here in this passage today that Hellenistic letters, letters of the Roman Empire, typically concluded with final greetings and a farewell. And Paul remains true to this form as, as we round out Colossians. But Colossians is notable because it contains the second longest ending in all of the Pauline letters. Only Romans has a longer conclusion to it. So as we read the end of Colossians, we notice that Paul here is going to mention ten names. And in these ten names, he gives to us some insights about each person or or gives us some tidbit of information about each one, as well as passing on instructions for the church, final instructions for the church. And then, even like modern letters today, he signs his name and he signs off with a benediction. The final greetings and the farewell of 
chapter 4, verses 7 to 18, bring this letter to an appropriate conclusion. At the very beginning of this study, I subtitled the book of Colossians as a manifesto for the Christian life because it plainly and yet boldly summarizes the gospel and then applies the outworking of the gospel to the life of the Christian and to the life of the church in very practical ways. I hope you've been able to see that, especially in chapters 3 and 4 as we've worked through that over the last several weeks. The final greetings and the farewell then in verses 7 to 18 really subtly recapitulate, they summarize some of the letter's main themes with specific and appropriate application to the Colossians. And we're going to look at that as we read and study this passage. But again, as we have done every week, I hope, is we want to try to mine out very specific, very appropriate applications to our own lives as well. And so I want to be looking for those as we go through. So let's read the passage. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and just read down to the very end of the book. Tychicus will greet, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the, of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with, you, with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So I want to do two things with this passage this morning. I want to first just kind of walk through verse by verse and just provide an overview of what's going on here. What is Paul attempting to accomplish? What is he actually saying uh, about these people to the church at Colossae? And then I want to circle back around and look at some of the key themes that we see in this passage. And again, try to make some kind of application to our own personal walk and also our corporate walk together as a church body. So let's first look at kind of the overview of the passage. Let's walk through the text. We can organize this passage. It's really hard to kind of outline and organize. But we can organize this passage around the names that Paul lists for us here in this, this section. There are ten names besides Paul's name. The first eight of these belong to his ministry associates. And we see those associates listed in verses 7 through 14. The first two that he mentions in verses 7 through 9 are the messengers, his own personal messengers that he is sending to the Colossians. They are Tychicus and Onesimus. Again, verses 7 through 9. We see in verse 7 that Tychicus is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And he is going to be the leader of, the, of this delegation. Of the two guys that are going to Colossae, Tychicus is the, the leader of that delegation. He's the leader of the two of those. The second is Onesimus. And you'll see in verse 9 that Paul identifies him as a faithful and beloved brother. He is also a Colossian. You can see that phrase 
uh, at the end of, or in the middle of verse uh, 9, where he says that Onesimus, who is one of you, he is from Colossae. He is a Colossian, just like his, the recipients of this letter are. Now, Onesimus had run away from his master Philemon, who was a member of the church at Colossae, and he had somehow, we're not really exactly sure, he has somehow joined up with Paul in Rome. Paul, remember, is in prison at this time, and he has somehow joined up with, Rome, with Paul in Rome, and he has become an assistant to Paul in the ministry. He is helping him to, to carry out his ministry even from his prison cell. In fact, Paul will acknowledge this in the book of Philemon, which is a letter to Onesimus' owner. He says that Onesimus had contributed much to his ministry, and yet Paul felt compelled to send Onesimus back to Philemon so that he could be reconciled with his master. Now, Tychicus and Onesimus have four main functions. They are first to deliver Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in fact, they're not simply delivering this letter. They're also delivering the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22 mentions that Tychicus is carrying a letter to the Ephesians. And it makes sense. We've noted in the, the study of Colossians a lot of parallel references back to Ephesians. There's a lot of similar content in both of those letters. So Paul is writing these at the same time. And in fact, Tychicus would have stopped at Ephesus first to deliver the letter to the church at Ephesus. He is also carrying a letter to Philemon, which we'll look at in next week a little bit more in depth. And then also in verse 16, he references a letter to the Laodiceans. So Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying four letters. They are postmen of sorts carrying these letters uh, as, as would be accustomed in the ancient world. Secondly, and this is primarily referring to Tychicus, but they're going to read the letter to the Colossians in the gathering of the church. We did that the very first Sunday when we began studying this book. I read the letter in its entirety because that's what, have, that's what would have happened when Tychicus had appeared in the gathering of the church of Colossae. He would have read this letter. But he probably would have done more than simply just read the letter. He probably also may have circled back around and explained certain things in the letter. He may have expounded on certain things in the letter. So he is, also has a teaching function, a pastoral function, in addressing some things that maybe needed a little bit of ex- explanation. Or maybe there were questions about among the congregation. Tychicus is there to give sort of a, a fuller explanation to what Paul has written. Thirdly, both Tychicus and Onesimus will report on Paul's condition. In fact, uh, Paul references that three times in verses 7 through 9. That, remember that Paul's under house arrest. He is in Rome. He is imprisoned. And, and so there must have been some sort of anxiety among the Colossians to really know what was going on with Paul. And so in an effort to reassure them, Paul tells them, look, Tychicus and Onesimus are going to tell you how I am doing. They're going to give you an update on how things stand here. They're going to let you know how I'm doing personally, what the state of the ministry looks like, and what my circumstances are. Because Paul did expect to be released from his imprisonment. And then finally, they will encourage the Colossians. In chapter 4, verse 8, he mentions here that they, that he is sending Tychicus and Onesimus to them that they may encourage your hearts. How will they encourage the Colossians? Well, they're going to hopefully ease their mind about Paul, ease their anxiety about him. They're going to reiterate Paul's love and concern for them. And they're going to instruct them in truth. Because it's in the truth where they will find this life with Christ. They will be able to continue walking in Christ. They will know better how to walk in Christ. They can press deeper into the things of God. They can, they can experience the life that comes from knowing and walking in that truth. So that's their role, their purpose. So they kind of are bracketed out among those eight associates. The next six come in verses 10 to 14. 
And these are the names of Paul's associates who remain with him in Rome. They are continuing to serve the Lord with Paul while he is in prison. They are continuing his ministry in one form or fashion. Paul notes that they are sending, all of them are sending their greetings to the Colossians. They can't be there, so they are sending their greetings to the Colossians. And Paul then will also kind of categorize these names into two groups. The first of those, uh, the first group is, are the first three that he lists in verses 10 and 11. And these are the Jewish associates, the Jewish ministry partners of Paul. Aristarchus, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus who is called Justice. Paul notes in verse 11 that they are men of the circumcision. That's a reference to their, their, their Jewishness their Jewish heritage, their Jewish ethnicity. These are men, who they're Jews, who heard the gospel preached. They responded in faith, and now in some way, we don't know how, but they've joined up with Paul, and they have, they're helping him to carry out his ministry, his mission of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. The next three names in verses 12 through 14 are then Paul's Gentile associates. Epaphras in verses 12 and 13, and then Luke and Demas in verse 14. Epaphras, does that name sound familiar? It should be. He's mentioned at the very beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. He is probably the one who had heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus, took it back to Colossae, began preaching the gospel there in Colossae, among, the, among the people of, of Colossae, and those who responded in faith then became converts to Christ. And Onesima, or excuse me, uh, uh, Epaphras, begins to gather them together, and he begins to establish a church in Colossae from those converts. And he has some kind of ministry there. In fact, we see that Paul references again the, 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 the fact that Epaphras is a Colossian. He is, he is from Colossae. It says in verse 12 that he is one of you, like Onesimus. He is a Colossian. He ministered among them. He labored among them. Now, we don't, again, we don't know why he left Colossae, but he is now with Paul in Rome. And he continues, even though he is separated from them, even though he's far distant, he continues to labor for the Colossians in prayer as he prays for their spiritual maturity and their assurance in the Lord's will. Uh, Luke, we note in verse 14, is the beloved physician. Uh, we don't know exactly what all of his ministry responsibilities were, but we seem to think that he traveled with Paul in part to be his personal physician, to meet the apostles' medical needs. And we do believe, we know he had a problem with his eyesight. He references that in Galatians. He makes mention of the fact of a thorn in his flesh in Corinthians, which nobody really knows for certain what that is, but most people feel it's some sort of a physical problem. So perhaps Luke is there traveling with Paul to attend to his medical needs. The last two names that are mentioned then in this section are the names of people living in Colossae and Laodicea. They are key people, not just in those cities, but among the churches in those places. The first name that's given to us in verse 15 is the name of Nympha. Nympha is a woman. She is probably a wealthy widow who hosts the church of Laodicea in her house. As Paul references that there in verse 15. Now, up until the 4th century, churches did not meet in buildings. They did not have their own personal buildings. In fact, it would have been very risky for the church to meet publicly in their own building because of the persecution that was rampant throughout the Roman Empire. So what normally happened is they had to meet in a private place or a secluded place or if there was a wealthy Christian who had a large house, they could have the church gather in the house for the purpose of worship and prayer and fellowship and so forth. They would be wealthy enough to meet the hospitality needs that would be needed to support a church like that. So the fact that Nympha here is mentioned as hosting the church indicates she was probably a widow because 
if her husband was a Christian, he would probably be named along with her at least. Or if he was not a Christian, she probably would not have been allowed to host the church in her house if he were an unbeliever. So we know she's a woman. She's probably very wealthy and she's probably a widow. She is hosting the church. She is allowing them to meet in her home. She is supporting the hospitality ministry of the church. She lives in Laodicea, as we see in verse 15. Laodicea, you might remember, is a sister city to Colossae. And also Hierapolis, which is mentioned in verse 13. Those three are kind of tri-cities. They're in a tri-city area in the Lycus River Valley. Laodicea sat about 12 miles to the west of Colossae. And because of their proximity, we see that Paul instructs the churches to share their letters back and forth with one another. So he's writing this letter to the Colossians, and he says, when you're done reading this letter, pass it to the, the, to the Laodiceans so they can read it too. And the letter that I've written to them, make sure you get so that you can read what I've written to them. So there's sort of this cross-pollination that's occurring among the churches in that area. The second name here is the name Archippus in verse 17, who is probably from Colossae. He is, he's referenced also in the letter to Philemon in the early uh, portion of that. So he's probably a, a, a member of the church in Colossae. And in fact, he may have had some sort of a ministry position, maybe a pastoral position even, because Paul says to him in verse 17, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And that word ministry, as we'll see in a little bit, is a, a specific word that, that deals with the gospel ministry, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel and instructing the disciples in the faith. And so he had some sort of leadership role in Colossae. So those are the ten names. But you'll see in verse 18 there's one more name mentioned, and that's Paul's name. Paul closes out the letter with his own signature and his own greeting. I write, he says in verse 18, I write this greeting with my own hand. So Paul here is not just simply adding his greeting, he is signing the letter. And again, it was common in the Roman period for letter writers to use an amanuensis. So amanuensis is like a personal secretary, right? Uh, the, le- the author of the letter would either dictate the letter to the amanuensis who would write it down word for word, or he would kind of give the amanuensis sort of a, a meaty outline of things he wanted to make sure were included in the letter. The amanuensis would write a rough draft, and then the author would come in and, and edit that letter according to his own uh, personal uh, preferences or wishes. And so... Uh, even though the amanuensis may have had a, a fair degree of freedom to be able to draft the letter, Paul wants them to understand this letter comes from me. It comes from my hand. I am, by my signature, I am authenticating this letter. It is the apostolic seal of approval that calls you to heed the very things that I've written in it. And then as Paul concludes the last line here, he offers a benediction. And this benediction is written really in the spirit of the Old Testament priestly benediction from Numbers chapter 6. Paul not only trusts here that God's grace has already come to the church and is continually abiding with them, but he prays that God's grace will continue to be manifest in them through the gospel of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's sort of an overview of what we see in this passage. I want to circle back around. I want to just hit some key observations, key things that kind of stand out in this passage to me that I think are helpful to understand not only the church at Colossae and Paul's relationship with them, but also our own lives and our own church. And there are four observations that I would like to make. The first is that love binds Christians together. 
Love binds Christians together. In fact, it's one of the most impressing things to me about this passage. The passage just simply drips with love. In passing along these greetings, Paul is drawing attention to relationships. Relationships that are forged and sustained and established in love. Relationships of love characterized by enthusiastic joy, sincere affection, deep concern, and hopeful prospects. Let's think, and there's a lot of different ways we can see love in this passage. Let's just think for a moment about the, just the language that Paul uses here to describe the love that Christians share with one another. The first and the most obvious is the word beloved, right? The word beloved appears three times in this passage. In verses 7 and 9, both Tychicus and Onesimus are described as beloved brothers. In verse 14, Luke is the beloved physician. The word beloved means dearly loved, deeply loved. Paul here is communicating his deep love, his deep affection, his deep care, his deep concern, his deep gratitude for these brothers. There is a love here that is built and born of laboring together in this gospel ministry. As they work together, there is a love that is manifest. There is a love that is built. There is a love that is shared. And that love is sweet and it is broad and it is deep and it is binding. Paul also uses the word fellow three times in this passage. And the word fellow here means more than just simply the guy next to me. Fellow, it means more than just simply a a, a mere association, right? Someone I know or someone who works with me. But fellow here points to something that is shared in common. In fact, the word there is related to the word for koinonia. Something that is held in common. Something that is held together. Something where they both have a shared priority, a shared uh, existence together something that is deep, that holds them together, a deep attachment that binds them together. In fact, in verse 7, Tychicus is a fellow servant. You get the picture there of a slave who is toiling in the trenches with Paul. Someone who doesn't just identify with Paul because he knows what Paul is going through, but someone who knows Paul's experience. Someone who feels his pain. Someone who tastes his labor. Someone who shares in his fruit. He's not merely a fellow because he is with Paul. He is a fellow because he shares Paul's life. That's This word fellow, right, is an old English word that we kind of don't use anymore. I hate to throw my man card to the side here, but if you ever have read or seen the movie Anne of Green Gables, right? Remember, Anne is so desirous for a bosom friend, a friend that is closer than other friends, a friend that you can share the deepest parts of your heart with, right? That's what this means to be a fellow. We, especially guys, don't have this sense of fellowship anymore. We don't have fellows, right? It's too girly. It's too weird. But these guys have a depth of attachment to one another. They are fellows in the Lord, they share their lives together. They share their ministry together. Likewise, uh, uh, Aristarchus in verse 10 
is described as a fellow prisoner. He's not simply a guy who's sharing a jail cell with Paul. He's not simply sharing the same house as they're under house arrest. But his imprisonment binds him to Paul. And they know the depths of companionship because they serve the Lord together in chains. Even the Jewish ministry partners, right? Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Jesus, called Justice, are called here. Paul calls them his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They serve the same God. They have the same calling. They are pressing on for the same goal. They are on the same team. They all have skin in the game. There's a unity that is born together in what they do together and how they identify themselves together. The word brother is used in this passage also three times. This idea of brother communicates this reality of Christian love, right? Paul calls Tychicus and Onesimus his brothers in verses 7 and 9. He refers to the church at Laodicea in verse 15 as the brothers who are there. Christians have used kinship language to reflect the reality that followers of Jesus join a new family when they come to faith in Christ. When they enter the body, there is a new family that they are a part of, right? What did Jesus say when, when, the, when he was teaching the crowds and they were pressing in on him and his family goes looking for him they want to have an audience with him and someone comes in and says, Jesus, you know what? <clears throat> your mom's looking for you, your brother's looking for you, your sister's looking for you. He says, who are my mom, my mother? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? These who are in the kingdom, they're my mother and my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. The church is the family of God. Just as a nuclear family shares love among its members, so also the relationship between brothers and sisters in the family of God are characterized by love. Deep love. Think about what Paul is doing in this passage, right? You've seen the words. What is Paul doing? Well, the main activity in this passage is Paul is sending greetings. Well, not Paul. Well, Paul is. But the rest of them, they're all sending greetings. This passage is about greetings. Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, and Paul all send their greetings. And they are doing more than just saying hi, right? You come across someone you haven't seen in a while. Had this happen to me a few months ago. Saw a girl from grade school. Hadn't seen in 30 years. Was at my parents' church. She happened to be visiting that Sunday. Saw each other. Catching up on, you know, what's happened to you? What's happened to me? Her parents were very dear to me. They were my Sunday school teachers growing up. My, she was my, her mom was my English teacher in middle school. So I said, well, tell them I said hello. Right? I wanted to do, her to do more than just say hello. Just passing on a hello. I, want them, I wanted her to tell them Hey, let them know I'm thinking about them. Let her know I'm, I, I'm thinking about those ways they've impacted my life. But just having this conversation with you reminds me of how much, how important they were in my own spiritual journey. So this is more than just saying hi. Paul here is, commu- well, actually they're all communicating the joy that exists because of their friendship in Christ. Why is, why is Aristarchus and Mark and, and just, why are they sending greetings to the church at Colossae? Because they, they share joy. In Christ. They're communicating sincere affection because they feel for one another this depth of relationship forged by this friendship that's come through Christ. They're communicating a deep care and concern for the condition and circumstances for one another because of their friendship in Christ. They're expressing hope for their well-being and continued progress in Christ. We also see the depth of Christian love 
displayed in this passage that concerns the people for one another. They, they're concerned for one another, right? We see that concern as, as Paul tells the Colossians three times that Tychicus is going to update you on my condition. Can you imagine? They may have somehow gotten word that Paul was in prison. And in the Roman world, going to prison was a lot worse than going to prison today. I mean, it could have been a death sentence. If you didn't have family or friends coming to meet your personal needs, if the Roman system felt like they could just be abusive towards you, they would do that. So this is, they're probably in a lot of anxiety over Paul and what's going on with him. And uh, you know, what are his circumstances? How is he physically? How is he spiritually? How is he doing knowing that he's got to, to serve the Lord from a, from a prison cell? So he sends Tychicus. And he tells him three times, he's going to update you on my condition. Their concern for him is so high. Why is it so high? Because they love Paul. They love him. They're concerned for him. They want to know about him. Paul loves the Colossians so much in return that he's going to send Tychicus on this thousand mile journey that will take several months for him to get there and to deliver this letter. And even more than deliver this letter, but to give them a report about Paul and his circumstances. Paul loves them so much that he wants to alleviate their concerns. And so what does he do? He sends Tychicus out to encourage their hearts to say, don't worry about me, but press deeper into your walk with Christ. So it is love that binds Paul to the Colossians. And what makes this even more remarkable is that Paul never met this church. Remember that? We went back way back in January. Paul had never been to Colossae. He did not found that church. He had no previous relationship with them. And yet he is so concerned for them that he takes the trouble to write them a letter, have Tychicus send it to them, just so that they will not only be, uh, be alleviated by him, but so they will be instructed in the Lord. He loves them. He's concerned for them. He labors for them. He sacrifices himself for Christ on their behalf. He seeks their prayers. He prays for them. He trusts God for their continued well-being. He does all that for a people that he's never met before. That's love. That's love. We note Aristarchus and Mark and Justice's love for Paul because in verse 11 it says they are a comfort to him. They have been a comfort to me, he says. Probably by their physical presence there with him in the prison, but also for their spiritual encouragement to him during this time as they are praying with him speaking truth to him, encouraging him, supporting him, doing things for him. Perhaps there are some that are not in prison, right? And so they're carrying out the task he has given to them to go places, to do things, to to preach in certain areas. They are a comfort to him. We see more love in verses 12 and 13 as Epaphras labors and struggles for the Colossians, even though Again, he is hundreds or thousands of miles away from them. He continues to serve them and work for them from a distance. We see Nympha's love for the church reflected in her hospitality as she hosts the church in her house. So this passage reveals the robust measure of love that Christians share for one another. Christians love one another. Love is to be the distinguishing mark of the church. Jesus said in John 13... Verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how are you loving the body of Christ? Would people know you by your love? Would people know us? Would they know Trinity Community Church by our love? Would they know that we love one another with the kind of love that's reflected here among these Christians in this passage? If we exist as the true expression of the body of Christ, then it is our mission to love one another. And if we make our mission to love one another as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as part of the outworking of the gospel of Jesus, then love will permeate the fellowship. So Christians, love binds Christians together in this bond, in this oneness of love. The second key idea here is that Christians labor together for the sake of the gospel. Christians labor together for the sake of the gospel. The idea of working together for a singular mission also saturates this last, this last section of the, of the letter. Paul is a man on a mission. His co-laborers join him in the work that he's been called to do. He even pulls the Colossians together in laboring together with him and for him and in their community and with other churches in their area. And so we have this idea of Christians working together, of laboring together for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the glory of Christ, the good of the church. Again, think about the language here that reflects this idea of Christian labor. Paul uses the word faithful twice, describing Tychicus in verse 7 and Onesimus in verse 9. They are faithful ministers. They are faithful brothers. They have submitted themselves to Christ. They've submitted themselves to Paul. They are regular. They are consistent in their obedience to Christ and to Paul to fulfill this work that has been given to them. They're faithful. They're steady. You can count on them. Paul uses the word minister and ministry twice in verse 7 and 17. Tychicus here is a faithful minister in the Lord. Archippus is charged to fulfill his ministry in the Lord. That is, he is to be laboring for the Lord in doing the work that the Lord has called him to do. So these men have been called to a specific work. The, work. the word ministry here refers to a specific kind of work. The work of gospel ministry. The work of declaring the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. The work of, of explaining how, how faith in Christ brings us to a relationship with God. A way of explaining and understanding how we are saved. How we are redeemed. They are to be out and to be declaring this message of redemption and salvation to all who will believe. Paul uses the word servant here in this passage twice to depict not only our relationship to Christ, we are slaves of Christ, but also to illustrate the service that we are to render to him. Again, in verse 7 and 12, Tychicus and Epaphras are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are slaves of Christ. And as slaves of Christ, they both serve the Lord by doing his work in building up his kingdom through his churches. Paul uses the word prisoner on several occasions here. The idea, the metaphor, the, the illustration of being a prisoner to convey the sacrifice and the fruit of serving the Lord. Paul, in verse 18, is bound by chains as a prisoner of Christ. Aristarchus, in verse 10, is a fellow prisoner because, again, he works alongside Paul and with Paul for the sake of the gospel. 
So the work that these brothers perform for the sake of the kingdom is hard work. And because it is hard work, it will bring on some adversity. In fact, it brings on much adversity. Their work brings on or incites hard consequences. This is not an easy thing to go about laboring for the kingdom. It's hard work. Paul's Jewish associates, again in verses 10 and 11, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, they were Paul's fellow workers for the kingdom of God in verse 11. Paul's description of them indicates how the kingdom of God is established. What are they doing to bring the kingdom of God into existence? They are working. They are laboring. They are toiling. They work tirelessly so that God's kingdom could be established, especially among the Colossians. And perhaps the best portrait here of laboring together comes in Paul's description of Epaphras in verses 12 and 13. Notice in verse 12 that he calls Epaphras a servant of Christ Jesus. Epaphras is devoted to toiling in the Lord's vineyard for his sake. Now, how does Epaphras labor? Well, we see that he labors primarily through prayer. Epaphras, who is one of you, verse 12, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, remember again that Epaphras is not presently with the Colossians. He is one of them. He is a Colossian. He preached the gospel. He established a church, but he's not there. He is not physically present with them. So how does he labor for them? Well, it says that he wrestles in prayer. The ESV says he struggles in prayer. That word struggling means to wrestle, to contend with. Epaphras is on the mat with a Colossian spiritual enemy, wrestling and struggling for the sake of the Colossians' progress in Christ. He is, the illustration of wrestling is to watch wrestling as a kid, right? They're going at it. These two wrestlers going at it. They're punching each other and kicking each other and knocking each other down and jumping off the ropes. There is this intense battle that's being waged for the Colossians and Epaphras is in the ring on their behalf, fighting for them, waging war for them. How is he doing that? He's doing it in prayer. What does this say about prayer? Prayer is not this passive thing. Prayer is not simply this Christian discipline that we do. We check off our list to say, I'm a Christian. I'm living like a Christian today. Prayer is spiritual war. It is spiritual combat. It is struggling with a spiritual opponent to see God's work accomplished in the lives of others. How easy, and I speak for myself here before I speak for anybody else, how easy we give up in prayer. When the battle gets tough, how quick we are to quit. How would we pray differently if we understood prayer as a wrestling match? How would we pray differently if we perceived that it was a struggle? Now, why would Epaphras do this? Again, we said it was love, but there's a purpose for it as well. He struggles on their behalf in his prayers so that they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He wants them to be mature. He wants them not only to know the will of God, but to do the will of God, to be fully assured of it, to know what it is, and then to walk in it. Now, again, remember that Paul has been exhorting the Colossians to do this very thing. Chapter 2, verse 6, the main idea of the book, walk in Christ. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. So Paul is exhorting the church to continue walking in Christ. Epaphras is praying that they will continue to walk in Christ that they will press deeper into that relationship, that they will progress in their sanctification, that they would stand firm in the faith, doing all that God requires of them. 
He can't be with them there to help them in that. So he is helping them by praying for them. And he's praying exactly the same thing that Paul prayed for them in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Both Epaphras and Paul labor together in their prayers for the church, entrusting the church to God and trusting that his purposes are accomplished in them. Remember that God's will is that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And both Paul and Epaphras will spend themselves, even from a distance, to see that that goal is accomplished. And again, he doesn't just labor for the Colossians. Verse 13 says he also does this for the church at Laodicea and the church at Hierapolis, tirelessly laboring for the Lord on their behalf. So this passage reveals the depth and the magnitude of labor that the followers of Jesus undertake for the sake of the kingdom of God. So the gospel brings us into a new relationship with Christ. We are tasked with a new agenda. We labor for a new master. We toil in his vineyard until his work is done. We do so all for the glory of Christ and for the good of his people. We do so together, right? We do so together. The church serves together for the sake of Christ and his people. Paul and his ministry associates and the churches in Colossae, Laodicea and Hierapolis are all pulling in the same direction. There's a synergy to our labor that allows us to accomplish more together than we can separately. And so Paul's conclusion here is to call us to labor together for the sake of the gospel. Third observation, Paul warns the church. I shouldn't say Paul says this. The Bible warns us. The Bible warns Christians against faithlessness. We don't see this directly in Colossians. We've got to see this in the bigger picture of Scripture, right? The warning here that Paul gives to us, well, not Paul, the warning that Scripture gives to us here is that we must beware of faithlessness. And we see that in two examples. The first example is Demas. Look at verse 14. It says, Luke the, be- <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Luke the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Just mentions Demas. Philemon 24 also mentions Demas, just almost like haphazardly, just offhand, right? Just mention Demas. He's here, he's sending his greetings. But Demas is mentioned also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Some three to five years after Paul writes Colossians, Paul notes that Demas deserted him and went back to Greece where he was from. Why did Demas desert Paul? Well, Paul writes there that Demas in love with the present world, has deserted me. Demas abandoned Paul because he loved the present world, the world characterized by rebellion against God, the world characterized by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of possessions, the world that Paul says is temporal and transient and corruptible and perishing. Demas fell in love with this world. And in doing so, he didn't just abandon Paul, he also abandoned Christ himself. Demas who professed faith in Christ, who assisted Paul, who proclaimed the gospel, who served Christ. In a few short years, Demas fell away. Now again, in fairness, we don't know the end of Demas' story. We don't know if he repented and returned to Christ and after Paul's death, returned to the ministry. But we also don't know if he continued in this way and he died in his sins. The Scripture warns us about the danger of forsaking Christ and Demas is an excellent example of that. 
And how do we understand Demas' defection from the Christian faith? Did he lose his salvation? Did he willingly forfeit the gift that God had given to him? I don't think that Scripture teaches that. It appears, at least to me, at least from understanding this person from the lens of Scripture, that Demas was never truly converted. He professed faith in Christ. He was baptized. He lived as a Christian. He performed Christian ministry. And yet, Demas was not truly a Christian. In the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, Jesus taught that some of the gospel seed will fall among the ground filled with thorns. The seeds will sprout and they will grow up among the thorns, but the thorns, which represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things, choke out the gospel seedling so so that it bears no fruit. The wheat will be cut down and thorns will be thrown into the fire. Jesus indicates that some who hear the gospel will respond like they are truly converted, that they will imitate true conversion, but their love for this present world will expose them as false converts. And likewise, Scripture also notes that those whom God calls to Himself, He will keep for Himself and preserve them all the way to the very end. In fact, the sign of genuine conversion is perseverance. So Demas here warns us to keep walking in Christ not to love the things of this world, not to abandon the faith, not to set our eyes on things that are other than Christ. He calls us here, the Bible calls us to continue walking in Christ. The sign that we truly belong to Christ is that we will continue to walk with Him all the way to the end. Those who are saved will persevere and those who persevere will truly be saved. The second example here is that of the church at Laodicea. In chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, the church at Laodicea looked very much like the church at Colossae. Paul had been laboring for them just as much as he had had for the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 1. And we presume that the church was thriving and prospering much like the church at Colossae was. Thirty-five years later, though, the scene had changed. The Lord Jesus addresses a letter to the church and charged them with faithlessness. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For, I, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's clear that the Laodiceans had fallen in love with the world just as Demas had. They had failed to submit themselves to Christ. They failed to obey Him. They failed to keep walking with Him and instead chose to satiate their lust by the things of this world. So Jesus exposes their sin and calls them to repentance. He promises restoration if they repent. But if they do not, He will judge them as false converts. Churches can fall just as well as individuals. And so a reading of the end of Colossians here challenges us as a church to continue to be faithful to Christ, to continue walking with Him lest He removes our lampstand. So we're challenged by Demas and the Laodiceans to keep faithful in walking with Christ. Faithfulness is intentional. We must continually submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ and keep walking in Christ, pursuing the things of Christ. Let's not be like Demas. Let's not be like the Laodiceans. Finally, last observation here. Christians have hope that God's purposes will be accomplished. 
Christians have hope that God's purposes will be accomplished. This letter drips with love. It also drips with encouragement and hope. Though Paul writes, writes here about the challenges that the false teachers have brought to the Colossians, he grounds his exhortation in the gospel, which promises the triumph of, of truth over error, which promises the triumph of righteousness over sin, which promises the triumph of Christ over the domain of darkness. Because the Colossians have anchored their hope to Christ, they are hidden in Him, and they will appear with Him in glory. God's purposes for them will be fully and finally accomplished because of the gospel of Jesus that Paul preaches. Paul writes with this sense of hope in the fulfillment of God's promises. He ends the letter with a reminder of his temporal conditions, right in verse 18. Remember my chains, he says. He reminds them, I'm in prison, I'm, I'm in captivity. Not only does he face the adversity of prison, he's also hindered by somewhat by fulfilling his calling. I can only imagine that Paul's kind of a caged animal in jail. He's been called to preach and he's sitting there in a, in a, in a, in a house, not able to go anywhere. Limited in what he can do and how he can fulfill his calling. And yet, he ends right where he began the letter. Grace be with you. Yes, it was standard for the Romans to end their letters with a wish for good prospects. Yes, it was standard for Paul to end his letters with an acknowledgement of grace. But Paul's life and ministry was grace from beginning to end. Had not the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he would still be violently rebelling against God. Now, even in prison, he rests in the grace of God to keep him anchored in Christ, to keep fulfilling his ministry, to persevere all the way to the very end, even if it means he'll be put to death. It's the grace of God that fills him with hope that one day his earthly bonds will be broken and all of God's purposes for him in Christ will be accomplished. It will all be by grace. And we too have hope that God's purposes will be accomplished in us because of the hope of the Gospel. God's grace has brought you to this point. God's grace is with you and sustains you this very day. And God's grace will bring you to the very end of God's promises on the last day. As John Newton would write, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will do what? It will lead us all the way home. All of God's purposes are accomplished in Christ. And it is ours by grace. We have that hope. And so we bring our study of Colossians to a close. It really is a manifesto of the Christian life. May God grant us His grace to keep faithfully walking in Christ, working out every implication of the Gospel in every moment, in every arena, in every relationship until that day when we too will appear with Him in glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this book that we have studied. We thank You for how it calls us not only to trust in Christ and to rest in Him, but Lord, to keep walking with Him. That Christ is more than simply fire insurance for us in the last day. That He is our hope. That He is our life. That He is our source of wisdom and grace and peace and mercy. He is our strength. He is our all. 
God, we pray this morning that you would help us to walk in faithfulness with Christ. Help us to cling to the gospel. Help us, Lord, to let it wash over us so that we are convinced that we are in Christ and then to allow the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to allow us to walk in that gospel, to walk in the truth of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Help us, Lord, to have hope. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to love. And, Lord, help us to labor for the sake of Christ's good and perfect and holy and exalted name and for the good of your people that we might be blessed in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.